Hey, welcome back to another episode of Brain to Mouth with no processing in between. We are going over another psychology chapter today. We're going to go over motivation, emotion, and stress. A lot of fun stuff. We're going to start it at the top with motivation. And I'm actually in a guest studio right now, so I might be able to talk a little bit louder. You know, have a little bit better sound quality, and I'm really giving this my all. Okay, so we're going to get started with motivation if my, my guest host will get off my fucking notebook. Alright, so what is motivation? You know, I got motivation to do this, motivation to do that, not a lot of motivation to do this. But, you know, that's really all it is. It is just the purpose behind our actions. If I have a motivation to study for the MCAT, that is, you know, getting a good score on the MCAT is my motivation, I guess. I don't know if that made sense. Um, appetite is your desire to fulfill a physical need. So that's like your motivation to, to eat. Uh, dude, can you get off my notebook? Ec- what is extrinsic motivation? That is motivation from an external, or motivation for an external tangible reward. Whereas intrinsic motivation is motivation that comes from within oneself. So I did, uh, on my practice full length exam, they asked a question about this, and it was about people training, you know, doing like a, a learning course to get ready for a new job that they had just been hired for. And it was found that like one group of participants, they, you know, even when they weren't being compensated or stuff like that, they were still learning this material. And it goes, what is that as an example of? And, you know, and this was out of their boss's knowledge as well. So that was intrinsic motivation because they wanted to get better at this. It wasn't for the ent- extrinsic motivation of, approval from their bosses or a monetary or a monetary reward instincts those are innate fixed patterns of behavior instinct theory is the theory that certain behaviors are based on evolutionary programmed instincts arousal is the physiological and psychological state of being awake and reactive to stimuli Arousal theory is a theory that people perform actions in order to maintain an optimal level of arousal. I don't know if you can hear my co-host here. What is that? I know. So the Yerkes-Dodson law postulates a U-shaped function between the level of arousal and performance. That basically just, what that amounts to says that there is an optimal amount of arousal you know less than that you won't be doing as well and you have if you have way too much arousal and it's counterintuitive there's just an optimal amount i think that's actually another name for the yurks dodson law the uh, optimal arousal theory or law so what is a drive a drive is an internal state of tension that activates particular behavior or is an internal state of tension that activates particular behaviors focused on goals. And there are different kinds of drives. The primary drives motivate us to sustain bodily processes and homeostasis. So this could be your drive to get warm when you're cold or to get or to cool off when you're way too hot. You know, maintain that optimal body temperature. Homeostasis. But there's also secondary drives, as you might have guessed. And those are additional drives not directly related to biological processes, thought to stem from learning. 
So a secondary drive might be the drive to, I don't know. <laughs> I was hoping that would come to me as I said it, and then it didn't. Uh, the drive reduction theory is the mode is the theory that motivation is based on the goal of eliminating uncomfortable states. So you want to satisfy your drives essentially. Your primary needs are physiological needs such as food, water, sleep, and shelter. You know, similar to primary drives, like your primary drives are to get your primary needs. Where secondary needs are generally mental states, like the desire for power, achievement, or social belonging. What is self-actualization? That is at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it is the need to fulfill one's fullest potential, or the need to realize one's fullest potential, at least. And so let's talk about that hierarchy of needs. All the way at the bottom, you've got your physiological needs. You know, be warm, have food. Then there's your need for safety. You know, have a... You know, not, not be dead in the middle of the woods. There's love, belonging. I don't think I need to explain that one. Then there's the need for esteem. And then all the way at the top is self-actualization, as we discussed moments ago. That brings us to the self-determination theory. And that basically says that human personality and behavior is based on the role of three universal needs. And that is the need for autonomy, competence and relatedness so these hotshot psychologists have actually identified four primary factors influencing motivation and they are instincts arousal drives and needs so with that in mind let's go over a couple more theories about motivation there is the incentive theory which says that behavior is motivated by desire to pursue rewards and avoid punishments. Expectancy value theory is a theory that the amount of motivation needed to reach a goal is the result of both the individual's expectation of success in reaching the goal and the degree to which they value succeeding at the goal. So basically, if I don't, if I think that there's a very slim chance of me actually succeeding in this task, I'm probably not going to have a lot of motivation to try and go through with that because it seems kind of pointless. Oh, I'm probably going to fail. What's the point of even trying? But then it's also, if even if I almost have a 100% chance of succeeding in this goal, if that success means virtually nothing, similarly, I'm going to have next to no motivation to do it. So the amount of motivation is a result of your expectation of success, and the degree to which you see the value in succeeding. There's the opponent process theory. What the? That's not right. <laughs> I wrote that the opponent process theory is that when a drug is taken repeatedly, the body will attempt to counteract the effects of the drug by changing its physiology. That does not seem right. I don't know where the hell that came from. Uh, I think that the opponent process theory is actually, I'm going a little off script here. I'm pretty sure that's just seeing emotions as pairs of opposites. So like happiness and sadness, you know, the more happy you are, the less sad you are and vice versa. All right. So speaking of happiness and sadness, we're moving on to our next section, which is on emotion. What is emotion? Well, 
An emotion is a natural instinctive state of mind derived from one's circumstances, mood, or relationships with others. And there's typically three elements of emotion. And these are the physiological response, the behavioral response, and the cognitive response. And so with, with all these different kinds of responses, that brings us to the different theories on how emotion actually works. Because this isn't there isn't a unified scientific consensus on this. You know, I think like, oh, it's just emotions. I'm happy, I'm sad. But it's a lot more complicated than that, apparently. So there is the evolutionary perspective. And this, is, and this simply states that everything we do think and feel is based on specialized functional programs designed for any, for any problem we encounter. So basically, it's like, uh, it's like we're computer programs, you know, input this, export that, output that. <laughs> uh, that's kind of the basic one, you know. Studying psychology, it feels like biologists just give basic answers, you know, like, oh, it's all in your genes, oh, blah, blah, blah. But then the, the big dick psychologists roll up and you're like, oh, oh, sweet child, it's so much more complicated than that. So we're going to talk about the James Lang theory. And that's the theory that a stimulus first, or a stimulus results first in psychological, or physiological, not psychological, physiological arousal, which leads to a secondary response, which is the emotion in which the emotion is labeled. So let's say... Let's say I'm watching a sad movie, and things are sad, and I start crying. So tears are running down my face, and in my brain I go like, in my my brain goes, oh, his eyes are watering, his sinuses are getting clogged, he's sniffling. That must mean we're sad. And so then I feel sad. Compare that with the Canon Bard theory, and that is the theory that. The conscious experience of emotion and physiological arousal occurs simultaneously, and then the behavioral component of emotion, or the action, follows. So James Lang goes physiological first, emotional second. Canon Bard says they both happen at the exact same time. So I, I'm watching a movie, and I feel sad, and I start crying at the exact same time. They're, they happen simultaneously. Then there's the Schachter-Singer theory. This is also called the cognitive arousal theory or the two-factor theory. And it states that two factors, that being the physiological arousal and the cognitive label, are needed to experience an emotion. Now that I read that, that's not a very good response. Um, I can see why this might be a little... You could get this confused with the James Lang theory. But it's basically that first, first you have the, the physiological response, like the James Lang theory. But then, instead of you, your body reading that physiological response, what happens is it labels something. So it goes, I am, ah, jeez, I don't know how to explain this. But in this, it's, in the James Lang theory, it's more so that your brain feels the emotion after the, the physiological thing. Whereas the Schachter-Singer theory is very specific on needing to label what is happening. Label this like, oh, I am afraid. Like you see a bear, your heart starts pounding, your brain goes, I am afraid, and then you start feeling afraid. Whereas I believe with the James Lang theory, that labeling and feeling occurs simultaneously. I don't really know if that made sense. But I, I know these are tough concepts. I... I, the only reason I really got them is because I had to keep like drilling in with the flashcards.
All right, but let's, you know, component or bleh. Rel Jeez, I can't talk. Emotions are a tricky thing. And so we have, they have to be explained by the trickiest thing, which is the brain. So let's go, let's go through parts of the brain that are important in this process. There's the amygdala, which is a small round structure that signals the cortex about stimuli related to attention and emotions. The amygdala processes the environment, detects external cues, and learns from a person's surroundings in order to produce emotion. So I believe, uh, I believe the amygdala is like spe is specifically involved in fear because I, I believe that there have been uh, experiments where they removed the amygdala in mice and rats and they had decreased fear responses. And I think they also got like very sexual too, but that's besides the point. The thalamus functions as a preliminary sensory processing station and routes all information to the cortex and other appropriate areas of the brain. The hypothalamus synthesizes and releases a variety of neurotransmitters serving homeostatic functions and largely dictating emotional states. So, for instance, uh, part you know, depending on what theory you look at, you know, you're you can get scared, you know, and part of that physiological response could be the release of epinephrine, norepinephrine. Well, when the hypothalamus releases, uh, I think it's uh, corticotropin releasing hormone, that makes the anterior pituitary release ACTH, which is like a adreno. I forget what it stands for, but it basically makes the adrenal medulla release epinephrine, norepinephrine, and then that could lead to the increased heart rate, increased respiratory rate, stuff like that that is associated with fear. Right, but let's move on. Let's talk about the hippocampus because it is primarily involved in creating long-term memories, and it aids in creating context for stimuli to lead to an emotional response. So the hippocampus is that spot in the brain, <laughs> the spot, you know, it's a spot in the brain where memories are consolidated. Emo emotional memory, which is, you know, part of what, part of the hippocampus job that makes that emotional memory. This is the storage of actual feelings of emotions associated with an event. So it's not just, oh, on this, on this day, I, I saw a car accident. Emotional memory is I saw the car accident. And I, you know, my heart sank into my chest and I, I couldn't process what was going on. I've never been so scared in my life. Stuff like that. It's how you feel, not just a recollection of the events. The prefrontal cortex is the anterior portion on, of the frontal lobes and is associated with planning intricate cognitive functions, expressing personality and making decisions. It also receives arousal input from the brainstem, coordinating arousal and cognitive states. And what was arousal again? That's a good question. Let me check because I don't remember. Do to do to do. Where is it? Damn, where is it? <laughs> arousal. Psychological and physiological state of being awake and reactive to stimuli. I always confuse arousal with alertness because the flashcards I use have like very similar definitions for them. I'm always kicking myself whenever I get it wrong.
the dorsal prefrontal cortex is associated with attention and cognition. The ventral prefrontal cortex connects, the re connects with regions of the brain responsible for experiencing emotion. So emotion, think ventral prefrontal cortex, obviously. Now the ventromedial prefrontal cortex is thought to play a substantial role in decision making and controlling emotional responses from the amygdala. Thought to play a substantial role in decision making and controlling emotional responses from the amygdala. Alright, but we're talking about all these theories and brain structure. Let's just talk about the emotions because there are seven universal emotions and this might tie into a uh, What's his face? The uh, the Warfian hypothesis, the theory of linguistic relativity. Maybe I don't know, because I was saying that language shapes our our reality essentially. So I think I talked about this on our last psychology episode, but it's like uh, you know, if a Russian there's a word in Russian for this very specific set of emotions. And so an American might experience all the same things, but they would feel different because they don't have a word to describe that, essentially. But putting that aside, there are seven recognized universal emotions. So regardless of language of culture, everybody experiences these emotions, supposedly. And these emotions are happiness, sadness, contempt, surprise, fear, disgust, and anger. Rawr. All right, seven universal emotions, happiness, sadness, contempt, surprise, fear, disgust, anger. All right, but let's talk about stress. Second like 5.3, stress. Stress is our response to challenging events. The cognitive appraisal is the subject, subjective, I'm going to yawn. Cognitive appraisal is a subjective evaluation of a situation that induces stress. Primary appraisal is the initial evaluation of the environment and the associated threat. Secondary appraisal evaluates whether an organism can cope with distress. It involves evaluation of harm, threat, and challenge. So what I'm getting from this is your primary appraisal is just recognizing the threat and the environment within that threat, wherein that threat is taking place. Whereas the secondary appraisal goes okay how can i deal with this stress so primary is identifying and secondary is coping trying to figure out what to do i just cracked my back i didn't know if you heard that i i had to get up from reading because there's a dog outside now dude is just vibing My co-host is just lying on the floor like a, like a, ah, he's attacking my feet. Ah, god damn it. What are you doing? Why are you like this? Ah, I love you. Why are you attacking me? Let's keep my co-host busy. Alright, I got my co-host to run down the hall chasing a ball. All right, so of the stresses, there is distress, 
which is when a stressor is perceived as unpleasant. And there is eustress, which is a state resulting from, posit from positively perceived stress. So distressed is most of everyday life. <laughs> but I don't know, if you, like, if you go to the gym to blow off steam, they usually use that as an example of a eustress. So, you know, you're, you're stressing yourself out trying to get a good pump, but, you know, it's, it's rejuvenating almost. At least for some people, not for me. I die at the gym. So the social readjustment rating scale is a system for measuring stress levels in life change units. So the more your life changes from something, the more stressed you're probably going to get. So let's say you move houses. That could be one lifestyle unit. If you move houses and change jobs, that's two, stuff like that, I'm assuming. I didn't really, in my notes, I didn't really elaborate on it, so I hope that's right. Maybe I'm just spewing straight nonsense. Oh, no. Oh, God. Oh, my co-host is jumping. What are you doing, dude? Dude just looked at me with his bug eyes and jumped on me. Okay, but let's talk about general adaptation syndrome, because this is the sequence of psychological responses. And, and really what this general adaptation syndrome shows us is that with, for a single individual, different stressors do not elicit different responses. It's just a general response for all stress. So the first, there's, and there's three stages of this. The first is the alarm stage, and this is the initial reaction to a stressor and activation of the sympathetic nervous system. Just a refresher, the sympathetic nervous system is responsible for fight or flight. After that, there's the resistance phase, and this is the continuous release of hormones, which allow the sympathetic nervous system to remain engaged to fight the stressor. So you got, like, you're just smacking that bitch with epinephrine, norepinephrine, saying, keep going, keep pushing. But, you know, you, you don't have unlimited epinephrine. You don't have unlimited all the good stuff, all these neurotransmitters. So eventually you go into stage three, which is exhaustion. And this is when the body can no longer maintain the elevated response with the sympathetic nervous system activity. So if you were to, if you were to look at a graph on this, it, you know, it'd shoot up, I, I think like pretty fast and then level out mostly with the resistance and then just crash pretty fast. Exhaustion, you just can't go on, man. And that is it for stress. How are we doing on time here? Well, uh, only 22 minutes, maybe. You know what? No, fuck it. Fuck it. We'll do it live. We're going to do two chapters. We are going to do. We did. We did motivation, motion, and stress. Fuck it. We're going on to identity and personality. I don't, I'm a madman. I don't even give a darn. We are doing this. All right. Fuck it. We'll do it live. Alright, so chapter 6 is Identity and Personality. Maybe I should split this up into two episodes. Um, nah, for, I, I'm in too deep. I'm in too deep. Alright, Identity and Personality. So, we're going to start with Self-Concept and Identity. So our self-concept is our awareness of ourselves as distinct from others and our, inter and, uh, and our internal list of answers to the question, who am I? The answer is gay, by the way. Our self-schema 
is a self-given label that carries a set of qualities. Our identity is the individual components of our self-concept related to the groups we belong to. So part of someone's identity might be, I'm American. Part of someone's identity might be, I'm Jewish. You know, those, those don't necessarily tell you much about the person, but it's part of them because it's relating to the groups that they, they associate with. <sighs> to blow my co-host's hair off of everything. So gender identity is a person's appraisal of themselves on scales of masculinity to femininity. So me being a super alpha male, I am all the way on the masculine side of it. Just, I'm, I'm just so manly, I'm big and strong. Whereas someone else might find themselves more in the middle of that. There is androgyny, which is the state of simultaneously being very masculine and very feminine. Co-host, what are you doing? Co-host, don't lick that. Co-host. Don't talk to me like that. I'm in the middle of a fucking production. You can't be professional for five goddamn minutes. Yeah? Yeah? Fucking amateurs. There's undifferentiated. I'm, I'm so sorry about that. There's undifferentiated, the state of simultaneously not being masculine and not, not being masculine, nor being feminine. There is the gender schema, and this theory holds that key components of gender identity are transmitted through cultural and societal means. So in so in some cultures they they recognize widely a third gender. So you could be male, female, or the third gender. So that goes in with gender schema. So these components of gender identity are transmitted and maintained by cultural and societal means or norms. But there's also your ethnic identity. And this is the part of one's identity associated with membership in a particular racial slash ethnic group. Compared that to your nationality, and that's based on shared history, media, cuisine, and national symbols such as a country's flag. So your ethnic identity could be you are you're black. Whereas your nationality might be that you're you're Nicaraguan, you know? Let's talk about the hierarchy of salience. And this this describes how our identify how, how our identities are organized such that we let the situation dictate which identity holds the most important to us at any given moment. So if I'm at an America First rally, Stop the Steal rally, you can bet that I am super American right now. Whereas if I am at a furry convention, suddenly my uh my love for anthropomorphic animals and my, my identification as a furry is much more important than my my identity as an American, if that makes sense. Basically, you know, you, you change, you, you adjust yourself for the situation, essentially. 
there's a self-discrepancy theory that maintains that each of us have three selves and that perceived differences between these selves lead to negative feelings. And these selves are the actual self, which is the way we see ourselves as we currently are, the ideal self, which is the person we would like to be, and the ought self. And this is our representation of the way others think we should be. So it's like it's like the old saying, there there are two wolves inside of you. One of the wolves is gay. The other wolf is also gay because you're gay. I say that with love. Happy Pride Month. Your self-esteem is essentially just your self-worth. The closer our three selves are, the higher our self-esteem. So if I see, if I see the way I, if the way I see myself, if I, if I look at myself and I go, dang, that's pretty good, then chances are that my actual self and my ideal self are closely aligned. And so that, that would raise my self-esteem. And if I, if I look at myself and I like what I see and I go, dang, I bet other people really like what they're, what they're seeing too, then all of myself, my actual self, ideal self, and alt self are likely closely aligned. And so you can imagine if you're thinking, dang, I like how I am. I don't think I need to change that much. I think other people like the way I am. Then your self-esteem is probably pretty high. All right, but let's talk about self-efficiency, and that is our belief in our ability to succeed. Learned helplessness is the perceived lack of control over the outcome of a situation. So this is where you you just see yourself as not being in control. And this is a result of depressed self-efficiency. Your locus of control is the way we characterize the influences in our lives. People with an internal locus of control view themselves as controlling their fate. Those with an external locus of control feel that the events in their lives are caused by luck or outside influences. All right, but now we're going to get into the fun stuff. We're going to talk about the formation of identity, and we're going to talk about the man, the myth, the daddy, Sigmund Freud, because this guy was all about that psychosexual development, right? So he listed one, two, three, four, five, I kind of that right, five stages in the development of people. And oh, look at me. I did not write down the ages for these, but I bet I can remember them because I do flashcards, don't mean a flex. But the first of these stages is the oral stage. And this is described by libidinal energy centered on the mouth. Fixation can lead to excessive dependency. Uh, Fixation, what does that mean? I probably should have defined that, but here we are. Fixation is when a child is... Co-host. Fixation is when a child is overindulged or overly frustrated during a stage of development. So, if you're fixated in the oral stage, it can lead to excessive dependency. The oral stage is from ages 0 to 1. So itty bitty baby. Next is the anal stage. That is when toilet training occurs. And fixation in this stage can lead to excessive orderliness 
or excessive messiness. So me, maybe I didn't poop right. Maybe I got fixated in the anal stage because I am super clean most of the time. So that might be me getting fixed there. But to be fair, a lot of Freud shit has been discredited. I probably should have led with that. There's a lot of things I should probably lead with. And then I just talk and I get there and I'm like, oh, they should probably know this. And then I just blurt it out. A lot of this has been discredited. <laughs> but I still have to take freaking pages and pages of notes on it. Uh, I say that. I took exactly one page of notes on that. So I guess I should stop complaining. Anywho, the anal stage is from one to three, I believe. Next is the phallic stage. And that is when the opetal or electra conflicts are resolved. And those are just... These conflicts are when kids want to... I wrote, this is my, my description. Kids want to fuck their parents, but then they feel bad about displacing their same-sex parents. So, a daughter would want to fuck her dad, but she feels bad because she doesn't want to displace her mom, essentially. And then the opposite is also true. And the phallic stage, when is that? I think that's three to... Three to eight? I think it's three to eight. Next is the latency phase, and this is when the libido is largely sublimated. Latency stage is, I believe it is eight years old to puberty. And then there is the genital stage. This begins at puberty. If previous stages have been successfully resolved, the person will enter into normal heterosexual relationships. And so the genital stage is from puberty to adulthood. I, uh, give me one moment while I pop in my other AirPod, because this one is dying, supposedly. Testing, testing, are we good? Okay, we're back. I, I popped out the dying AirPod and put the new one in, and it stopped recording. So... That's neat. Anywho, what were we talking about? We were talking about the genital stage. Oh my god, my apartment just texted me that there's free Chick-fil-A. Oh man, I'm gonna... Oof. I'll be right back, folks. Okay, and we are back. Once again, hopefully for the last time, I had to jot on over to the old apartment, grab some Chick-fil-A, and then I ate the Chick-fil-A. So now I am, I'm rested, I'm digested, um, and I'm going to continue reading these notes. So, if I recall correctly, we were talking about Freud's psychosexual development. So... Uh, it finishes off with the genital stage from puberty throughout adulthood, and that says that if the previous stages have been successfully resolved, the person will enter to, into normal heterosexual relationships. And we talked about if any if you become fixated at any of these stages, then that leads to some kind of mental disorder. Um, and these mental disorders are called neurosis, defined as a mental disorder resulting from the anxiety caused by fixation as a child then forms a personality pattern based on the particular stage. So we talked about if you get fixated in the anal stage, you can, you can become excessively messy or excessively clean. 
All right, that was fun. Now we're going to move on to Erickson's psychosocial development. And the best part about these stages is that they are really goddamn difficult to memorize because there are four stages in a row that start with a word or that, that begin with a word that starts with the letter I. So these are very, very fucking difficult to remember. So let's go over them. Why not? So these are composed of... Uh, Erickson's theory of psychosocial development theorizes that personality development is driven by the successful resolution of a series of social and emotional conflicts. So we're going to go over those conflicts, these crises that you go out, that you, that you supposedly face throughout your life. So zero to one, your little baby, obviously you're having a crisis. And this is called the trust versus mistrust phase or stage. And the existential question of this is, can I trust the world? I, I was just floating in this nice, sappy goo. Not exactly. The, <laughs> what is it called? Uh, amniotic fluid. Not exactly a goo. But you come out and you're like, God, I don't want to be here. And you go, can I trust the world? Then you grow up and you enter the autonomy versus shame and doubt. Co-host, what are you yapping about? Uh-huh. Dude, dude, I'd pay a pretty penny for this renting equipment, and you can't just scratch it up. Oh, thank you. Alright, so ages 1 to 3 are the autonomy versus shame and doubt stage. And the existential question during this is, is it okay to be me? After that, from ages 3 to 6, there is the initiative versus guilt stage, asking... Is it okay for me to do, move, and act? After that, and you'll notice that these stages start getting progressively longer in their duration. So the first one, trust versus mistrust, was zero to one, then autonomy versus shame and doubt, one to three, then initiative versus guilt, three to six, and this is from ages six to 12. This is industry versus inferiority. And it asks, can I make the world of the, can I make it in the world of people and things? Next is 12 to 20, and this is identity versus role confusion. And it asks, who am I? What can I be? So this, you know, this makes sense. You think of a teenager, they don't know what the hell's going on, who they are. So they're in the identity versus role confusion stage. But then, you know, you're 20 to 40 years old. What are you doing? You're looking for that special someone, and that is called the intimacy versus isolation stage. And you ask, can I love? Then, after you do that, hopefully you find the love of your life. Isn't that right, Mr. Co-host? Oh, little buddy. After that, you, from ages 40 to 65, you enter the generativity versus stagnation phase, or stage slash crisis, and you ask, can I make my life count? And then, from 65 to the end of your life, you are in the integrity versus despair crisis, where you ask, is it okay to have been me? Have I led a good life? Things of that nature. And you can imagine if, you know, if there's a conflict in these you go to despair because there's not, there's not much you can do to fix it at that point. All right, but let's talk about the key features of this development model. 
So there's, there's three of the key features. And the first one is that each conflict represents an opportunity to learn a new emotional or social skill. Second is that each conflict has either a positive or negative resolution. Negative outcomes present failures to develop. So take the intimacy versus isolation crisis. If you, if you fail that one, then you don't develop the ability to be intimate and you become, you know, like an isolated person, a hermit. And the third, and this is pretty important, the third key feature is that a person who fails to obtain a positive resolution can still advance to later stages and may learn the failed skill later in life. So if you're 50 and you still haven't found your special someone, there's still hope for you. You know, you can still go out and find them. You're not held back because you didn't meet that checkpoint. All right, now let's talk about Kohlberg's moral reasoning. Uh, and this focuses on the development of moral thinking. And so there are three phases and then each phase has two stages. So there's the stage of pre-conventional morality. And this is when you are uh, a pre-adolescent, uh, specifically around three to seven. I don't know what you're doing for the first three years of life, but you're probably not thinking about this philosophy. And so this has the obedience and self-interest stage. So, you know, like children in this stage, they'll have a very childlike sense of right and wrong. And they'll be, they'll be self-interested. They, you know, they just want what's best for them. Then there's the conventional morality between adolescence and adulthood. So between, what is it, like 10 to 13, I believe? Yeah, I guess 13 and 13 years are adults, right? And this is the conformity in the law and order stage. So when you're in this conventional morality stage, you'll listen to rules just because they exist. Doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. Just there's a rule you must follow. All right. And then, if at all, you may enter the post-conventional morality stage. Kohlberg theorized that not everyone makes it to this stage. And this is the stage of social contracts and universal human ethics. So this is the stage where you go, hey, this might be law, this might be the, the law of the land, but this doesn't seem very moral. You know, just because it's a law doesn't necessarily mean that it is, is just, it's ethical. That means that's when you're in the post-conventional morality. All right, but let's talk about one last one, I think. One last theory, yep. This is Vygotsky's cultural and biosocial development. And so Vygotsky theorized that the engine driving cognitive development was the child's internalization of various aspects of culture, rules, symbols, language, and so on. And part of this was his zone of proximal development, that being skills and abilities that have not fully developed, but are in the process of development. So when and I didn't write it down because I'm a doofus, but when you're in the zone of proximal development, that's when you cannot do a task by yourself, but if you have someone showing you how to do that, then you're able to do it. So take riding a bike. You know, first how to like When you first learn how to ride a bike without training wheels, you're probably not going to just get it off the bat because you have to learn how to balance and all that. But, you know, when you have your pops on the side, you know, helping you out, you know, helping you steer, stuff like that, it, 
you can do it. You, you start to be able to do it by yourself. But you probably wouldn't be able to, at least starting out, you probably wouldn't be able to do that without your dad around. Or whoever's teaching you how to ride the bike. Alright, there is the theory of mind, which is the ability to sense how another's mind works. There is your looking glass self, and that is our understanding of how others see us. And that sounds... I don't know. I, guess, I was going to say that sounds like your ought self, but I guess that's how your ought self is, like how you think you should be perceived by others, where this is seems like a more objective stance, like this is how I think others see me, not how others should see me. And then, you know, when you're doing all these comparisons, the reference group is that group that you use as a standard to evaluate yourself. All right, but that was all good and fun. Now let's talk about personality. This is the fun stuff. This is the nitty gritty of all things that are human. All right, so personality is defined as a set of thoughts, feelings, traits, and behaviors that are characteristic of an individual across time and location. My co-host is just sitting on my lap licking himself. You guys hear him munching? Anyway, so first we're going to talk about the psychoanalytic perspective. If you thought we were done with our boy Freud, oh, ha ha ha, you are mistaken. And frankly, quite silly. So the psychoanalytic theories of personality championed by Freud state that unconscious internal states motivate the overt actions of, of individuals and determine personality. So we're going to talk about Sigmund Freud's contribution to this. We're going to talk about, when we talk about the different theories, I think especially this one, maybe not so much the other ones, we're going to talk about different contributions made by psychologists. So for Sigmund Freud, he postulated that there's basically three components of your unconscious. There's the id. I learned that you're supposed to pronounce it id, not id. And that consists of all the basic, primal, inborn urges to survive and reproduce functions according to the pleasure principle. And I'll come back to that. And the other one is the ego. Actually, no, let me define the superego first. The superego is the personality's perfectionist. Ah, co-host, please stop biting me. Jesus, ow, 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 ow. Ow. What the hell? Dude was just chilling on me, then he just fucking attacked me. Co-host. Why are you like this? I the fuckers over there licking his foot. All right. So we talked about the, the id. And that's just the, all your basic functions. Need to survive, reproduce, all that. Then there's the superego. And this is the personality's perfectionist. Judging our actions and responding with pride at our accomplishment and guilt at our failures. So you've got these two wolves inside of you. And then, the, you know, the id and the superego. And then the regular ego, just, just the ego, it takes into account objective reality as it guides or inhibits the activity of the ID or the id and its pleasure principle. And then it basically works as the mediator between the id and the superego, essentially. I didn't necessarily write that, but that's the truth. Okay. So take it back now, y'all. Talking about the ego. Functions according to the pleasure principle. What is the pleasure principle? The 
pleasure principle's aim is to achieve immediate gratification and relieve any pent-up tension. Okay, so primary process is the id's response to frustration based on the pleasure principle. Essentially, obtain satisfaction now, not later. Wish fulfillment is the use of mental imagery to fulfill the need for satisfaction. God, <laughs> I'm so bad at English. The need for satisfaction. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, and so id, pleasure principle, ego, operates under the reality principle. And the reality principle postpones the pleasure principle until satisfaction can actually be obtained. So, pleasure principle is going, I want it now, I want it now, give it to me now. Reality principle is like, that is not possible. Calm your roll. Alright, and the, the process of the ego basically mediating between the, the id and the superego is called, what is it called? Secondary process. Alright, let's talk back about the superego, the perfectionist, yada yada. It is actually divided into the conscience, conscience, and the ego ideal. The conscience is a collection of the improper actions for which a child is punished. The ego ideal are proper actions for which a child is rewarded. So you say like, oh, this is your conscience speaking. Don't do that. That's not good. That's because conscience knows what is all these things that you should not do. All right. We're talking about defense mechanisms. Oh, use humor as a defense mechanism, yada, yada. Let's, let's get into that a little more. Because a defense mechanism is defined by our Lord and Savior, Kaplan, as the ego's recourse for relieving anxiety caused by a clash of the id and the superego. They deny, falsify, or distort reality and operate unconsciously. So let's go over a number of different defense mechanisms. There's repression, or forcing undesired thoughts and urges to the unconscious. Suppression. This is a more deliberate, conscious form of forgetting. Regression, which is reversion to an earlier developmental state. Reaction formation suppresses urges by unconsciously converting them into their exact opposites. Uh, the book gave a good example for that that I do not remember. So, you're welcome. Projection is where individuals attribute their undesired feelings to others. So, if you're... Ah, I'm not going to give an example for that one. I can't think of a good one. Rationalization is justification of behaviors in a manner that is acceptable to society and to the self. Displacement is the transference of an undesired urge from one person or object to another. Sublimation is a transformation of unacceptable urges into socially accepted behaviors. So all of that was the work of Freud. Now we're going to talk about Carl Jung. J-U-N-G. He postulated the personal unconscious which is thoughts that have been repressed by individuals. But then there's also the collective unconscious, and that is a powerful system that is shared among all humans 
and considered to be a residue of the experiences of our early ancestors. Its building blocks are images of common experiences, such as having a mother and father. These images are called archetypes. So let's go over just a couple of archetypes. There's the persona, which is the mask we wear in public and the part of our personality we present to the world. There's the anima slash animus, which are sex inappropriate qualities. So the, anim the anima would be the unconscious feminine side of a man. And the animus is the unconscious masculine side of a woman. The shadow is responsible for the appearance of unpleasant and socially reprehensible thoughts, feelings, and actions experienced in the unconscious mind. So those are different kinds of archetypes. Now we're going to talk about the self, because the self is a point of intersection between the collective consciousness, the personal con or the collective unconscious, the personal unconscious, and the conscious mind. So Jung had three dichotomies of personality. The first one is extroversion versus introversion. Second is sensing versus in intuiting, intuiting. And the third is thinking versus feeling. All right, let's talk about our dog, Alfred Adler. He postulated the inferiority complex, which is an individual sense of incompleteness, imperfection, and inferiority, both physically and socially. The creative self is the force by which each individual shapes his uniqueness and establishes his personality. Style of life is the manifestation of the creative self and describes a person's unique way, a person's unique way of achieving superiority. There's fictional finalism, which is the notion that an individual is motivated more by his expectations of the future than by his past experiences. That's where you're like, oh man, I would just be happy if I got this job. I'd just be happy if I had this house, had this car. That is that fictional finalism because you're, you're motivated by what you could have in the future rather than what you have now or what's happened in the past. So inferiority complex, creative self, style of life, fictional finalism, that's all Alfred Adler. Now let's talk about Karen Horney. She postulated that we have neurotic needs, defined as needs of those with neurotic personalities directed at making life and interactions bearable. And so these needs can become problematic if at least one of these four criteria apply. They are disproportionate in intensity. They are indiscriminate. Co-host, co-host, don't do that. Why? Why do you, why do you want to scratch a couch? What does that, what do you, what does that do for you? You have scratching posts. We buy you all this shit. Why don't you just use it? You're acting like a doofus right now. You know, I just don't get you sometimes, dude. Alright, so they become problematic if at least one of these apply. They are disproportionate in intensity. They are indiscriminate in application. They partially disregard reality. Or they have a tendency to provoke intense anxiety. Okay, so let's... Uh, 
you know, talk about provoking intense anxiety, let's talk about basic anxiety. That is vulnerability and helplessness caused by bad parenting. There's basic hostility, and that is anger caused by parental neglect and rejection. There is the object relations theory, and that is representations of caregivers that persist into adulthood and impact our interactions with others. Okay, so that was that was all the psycho the psychoanalytic perspective. Now we're gonna talk about the humanist the humanistic perspective. Co-host, I'm trying to read this and you're just fucking stepping on it. You fucking you're you're acting like a goddamn animal. Anywho, so humanist humanistic theorists focus on the value of individuals and take a more personal or a more person-centered approach describing the ways in which healthy people strive for self-realization. Carlos is rubbing my face. Dude can't make up his mind. Dude attacked me like 10 minutes ago. So this is also called phenomenological theorists. All right, so humanistic theorists use the gestalt theory, which is that practitioners see each individual as a complete person rather than rather than reducing them to individual behaviors or drives. So maybe you have schizophrenia. A humanistic theorist would see you as a whole person that happens to have schizophrenia rather than just a schizophrenic. There's the force field theory, which states that within one state of mind, which is simply the sum of four, wait, okay, the force field theory is that one's state of mind is simply the sum of the forces or influences on the individual at that time. Peak experiences are profound and deeply moving experiences in a person's life that have important and lasting effects on the individual. So if you think back to like the, the finale of How I Met Your Mother, when Barney saw his daughter for the first time after she was born, that would be a peak experience for him because, you know, he never wanted to be a dad. He never wanted to do any of this. And then he just saw that baby and just it, the rest of his life was devoted to her. There is a humanistic perspective really brings into focus person-centered therapy. And this helps clients reflect on problems, make choices, generate solutions, and take positive action take positive action and determine their own destiny rather than providing solutions or diagnosis or diagnoses. And this is also called client-centered or non-directive therapy. All right, let's talk about type and trait perspectives. Type theorists attempt to create a taxonomy of personality types. Trait theorists describe individual personality as the sum of a person's characteristic behaviors. Somatotypes are personality types based on body type. A type A personality is competitive and compulsive. A type B personality is laid back and relaxed. Traits are defined as groups of behaviors that typically occur together. So that would be important to trait theorists. All right, let's talk about the Penn model. And this, uh, oh, what was this called? Uh, three dimension, the three dimensions of personality. These are psychoticism, defined as a measure of nonconformity or social deviance, extroversion, 
which is the measure of tolerance for social interaction and stimulation, and neuroticism, which is a measure of emotional arousal in, in stressful situations. Okay, not really related, but you know, part of this discussion of type and trait personality or perspectives is the negative affect, or how a person thinks of themselves and experiences negative emotions. The big five is an expansion of the Penn model using openness, consci conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So the Penn model uses three factors, big five uses five factors. All right, so then it's slightly different perspective, focuses on these different kinds of traits, part of you know trait theory. So cardinal traits are defined as traits around which a person organizes their life. These are like the big, big bahonkadonk traits. So like a monk's cardinal trait might be his religio religiosity. Central traits are major characteristics of one's personality. So like a central trait for me is that I'm a massive douchebag. A secondary trait are aspects of one's personality that only appear in close groups or specific social interactions. So a secondary trait of mine might be uh, my love of anthropomorphic animals. Not everyone knows that about me. That's a joke, by the way. Or is it? Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about functional autonomy. That is when a behavior continues despite satisfaction of the drive that originally created the behavior. So now this behavior is like autonomous, just going on, even though it did, did what it sought out to do. So that all falls into type and trait perspectives. Now we're going to do rapid fire. Boom, boom, boom. A couple more perspectives. There's the behaviorist perspective, which is that personality is simply a reflection of behaviors that have been reinforced over time. So that's talking about like, you know, things that were reinforced by your caregivers, by your parents, operant condition, all that jazz. Co-host, why? Why? You're so nice to me, and then you just bite me. Why do you do this? What do you gain? I can't, I can't work in these conditions. Okay, so somehow, token economies ties into the behaviors, behaviorist perspective. Oh, okay, now this is a type of therapy, token economics. And this is therapy in which positive behavior is rewarded with tokens that can be exchanged for privileges, treats, or other reinforcers. So this it basically uses offering conditioning, positive reinforcement. Uh, it seems a little demeaning to me to, to give, <laughs> give someone a treat for, for acting a certain way. There's the social cognitive perspective, and that focuses on how our environment influences our behavior and how we interact with that environment. And so the social cognitive perspective is, you know, basically kicked into gear by this idea of reciprocal determinism. And that is the idea that our thoughts, feelings, and our thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and environment all interact with each other to determine our actions in a given situation. Basically, you affect your environment and your environment affects you. The biological perspective, you know, I said that biologists are, are usually the basic bitches in these situations. This is no exception. It just goes, oh, personality is explained by the results of genetic expression in the brain, which is probably true for a good part, but I don't know. It seems, seems a little more complicated than that, but who knows? 
starting to know these biologists. And that brings us to the end. This was a double-decker episode. Uh, I really had to put in a lot of work to, to get this all done and neat. Um, and by work, I mean sitting down and reading my notes out loud. So I, I hope you enjoyed this double-decker episode of Brain to Mouth with no processing in between. There was certainly uh, no processing between in this episode, uh, neither from me nor my co-host. Uh, I'll see y'all in the next episode. Toodaloo.